Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. I'm radio host Emily Reese, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Jill Mott. She's the sommelier. For those of you that have auto-downloaded this episode, we wanted to apologize for our voice over Paul's unscripted comment. So here we are. This episode is all about the ladies. Emily is going to talk about two awesome female composers, one British, one American, and I'm going to talk about two very incredible, sparkling female winemakers. And we're going to taste it all. It's going to be delicious. You can check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Well, hello, Jill Mott. Hello, Emily Reese. Happy afternoon. Happy afternoon to you. Welcome to a day of cool new composers, two of which I had heard hardly anything about, and sparkling wine. I'd be surprised if you'd heard anything about one of them. I wouldn't, I'd be less surprised if you'd heard something about the other, if that makes any sense at all. I don't know why we always try to be so cryptic at the beginning. We're talking about <laughs> lady composers today. Lady composers. And lady... Sparkling winemakers, XX, Mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. This show was a product of a friend of mine conversation about sparkling winemakers and how they're, it was hard to name more than five, like off the cuff. I said, hey, you know, can you name me five to 10 sparkling female winemakers? And she's like, boom, 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 boom. And then it starts to get a lot yeah. slower from there on out. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to talk today about a couple really cool ladies that are making brilliant sparkling wines, one in California and one in France. So uh, I would love to start with some champagne today. That's just music to my ears, Emily <laughs> Reese. Um, so I brought with me a really cool wine from a producer, um, her... Champagne House is named after her grandmother. It's called Marie Corton, and her name is Dominique Moreau. Do a little pour. Here's the scores and pours. Yes. Yes. So the reason why I'm focusing on her is she started out in right around the middle part of last decade, like right around 2005, releasing single vintage, mostly single vintage, single varietal, which in a land of normally they're blends, she's doing no dosage and a single vineyard. And dosage is when you're adding a little bit of sugar and or wine at the end, um, usually it's sugar, to kind of round out the finish to obviously fill up the bottle because you You've expelled some dead yeast cells from your second fermentation in bottle. Okay. So once you expel those, you need to replace it with some liquid. And a lot of people use this liqueur that has some sugar in it, and it kind of oh. rounds out the edges of champagne. She says that is not needed, that mm. champagne doesn't need to round out its edges if it's going to be a true depiction of terroir. I shouldn't put those words in her mouth, but she thinks for her style, obviously, yeah. she's not adding that. Yeah. Um, and to give you an idea of her size, so Veuve Clicquot makes around 19 million bottles of champagne a year. People say, oh, Veuve Clicquot is, you know, it's beautiful champagne. Artisanal, it is not. <laughs> Moet and Chandon, they make Dom Perignon, they make 30 million bottles. 
Wow. She makes 15,000 bottles. So she's extremely small producer, all biodynamically farmed and certified as such. And she will use pendulums. She'll bring them out into the vineyard and also in the cellar. And she's very interested in how energy works. Obviously, energy changes according to the living things around it. Mm-hmm. And when it swings, it can swing in certain directions depending on possibilities, maybe as a suggestion of what one should do in the cellar or the way energies are working in the vineyard. So she's very intuitive and in tune um, and also isn't a, a like factory step-by-step winemaker. You know, she's yeah. um, listening to the earth and paying attention to what's around her, which I think wow. is really cool. Yeah. And let's just take a sip of this before I go any further. Okay. Right now we're tasting her resonance, um, which is Pinot Noir that is done in stainless steel. And what's beautiful is the first fermentation, which is a rarity in Champagne, is a native fermentation, so she's not adding any lab yeasts or anything. And so is the second fermentation, which even with a lot of biodynamic or organic producers in Champagne, the second fermentation that happens in the bottle is usually, oh, some maybe some lab yeast and some sugar or some sugar and, you know, it's just, it's yeah. it's never a native second fermentation. So so you said Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, yes. Red grape. Wow. Yeah. Which is why it's so edgy. One of the reasons, along with the no dosage. Give it a smell. Because it's white. Right it to the press. White. Right to the press. That's incredible. So rectilinear. I don't know what that means. Like it's just so just like jutting and just purposeful and just attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not drinking this out of a flute because you can't smell anything out of a flute. We're tasting out of a nice. nice Jill has very strong feelings about flutes. Let's just be clear. I hate them. I think they're beautiful, <laughs> but I hate their functionality. And so um, one thing I wanted to mention about this producer, though. So she's in the Cote de Bar, which if you're looking at Champagne, most of the action is happening in the north. Okay. There are lot of, lots of expensive Grand Cru, Premier Cru, like vineyards that are historically thought to be better. It just turns out it was a way to pay farmers for better sites that are now, that's sort of, you can have great folks making great wine anywhere. Okay. And so the Cote de Bar is warmer than a lot of the areas in a little bit further north, but it's also closer to Chablis which Chablis is known for its Kimmeridgian limestone and a little bit of clay soils. And so what you have here is a region that is destined for incredible winemaking with a lot of acidity and not needing that dosage to smooth it out, Mm -hmm. to have like world-class first wines, let alone a second fermentation in bottle. This area is closer to Chablis than it is actually to the capital of Champagne, okay. Rem and, and Epernay. So just really cool things happening there. Yeah. Marie Corton. It's delicious. Right? Yeah. Is there anything that was unexpected for you? Because I know we haven't had Champagne on the show yet. Yeah, I did not at all. We haven't? Champagne, Champagne? No. Oh. We've had a lot, we've had a lot of sparkling wine, but not Champagne. Yeah, you're right. Um, I think I was really surprised with how acidic it was and how much it made my mouth water. That was insane, and I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. What do you love about it? 
I've always enjoyed sparkling wine, and I think that goes back all the way to when you're a kid and you drink the sparkling cider, you mm-hmm. know, at Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff, and you feel so adult. And so I've always had this little kind of, you know, kind of crush on that flavor, you know, of like a sparkling grape juice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's really fun to taste a really good one. Yeah. And the acid, too, is just it's just phenomenal. Off the charts. Yeah, it mm-hmm. smells. Um, it's got like a minerality about it, a smell of mm-hmm. wet rocks that yeah. almost supersedes, you know, the autolysis or what we're smelling like these dead yeast cells these notes of like like brioche dough and croissant and all the all the luxurious elements that you associate with good champagne it has that definitely but the minerals because of where it comes from like i was saying before and she's she's obviously picking to make great quality wine you know it's very expressive fruit as opposed to picking way too early and then all you get are notes of you know brioche and nothing else. I mean, you've got fruit here, you've got minerals, you've got the yeast. On the back label, what I like about Marie Corton, or I should say Dominique Moreau, is that she she writes the vintage. So this is from the 2014 vintage, which is cool because most most champagnes out there are a blend of years to try to create create consistency. Okay. And so year in and year out, you buy Moet and Chandon. The blender is so good that the blender is going to make it taste the same every time, sure. which is good if you like a, you know, the same thing. Mm-hmm. But what Marie's trying to say is, listen, if we're talking about it's a it's a wine first and has bubbles second, years are going to matter. You know, maybe one year is age worthy and one vintage is not age worthy. Mm-hmm. And so she likes to put the vintage on the back. She's stating that this is 100% Pinot Noir, also very rare because so if it's a blend of grapes that's going to help create consistency if it's a bad year for chardonnay this year mm-hmm. and a good year next year if you're doing a non-vintage blend you can just like yep you're playing Doesn't lab matter. all the live long day yep. in the cellar um she's stating that the date of disgorgement is february 2018 so you can tell if you drink champagne oh this has been in the bottle since since february and you're able to know Wines will develop while they're in bottle, especially a living one like this that has nothing added to it other than just a touch of sulfur. So that's cool. And then she does have, like, all champagne houses are required to have a little um, initials that they put on their back label or their front label. And she's got RM, so anybody that's in the know of champagne would look at that and know she's a recollectant manipulant. She collects her own grapes and makes her own wine so she's not buying any fruit. So okay. hats off to Dominique. She's a badass. That's all I'm saying. <sighs> badass. Badass. Thanks, Dominique. Can't wait to come visit you someday and have you teach me the ways of the pendulums. I hope I'm along for the ride. <laughs> the thing, too, that always gets me about Sparkling wine, and we've talked a little bit about this and, you know, how it's a real thing, just how different it can taste when it's super bubbly right off the bat. But if it sits for a little bit and some of that carbonation goes away, it just tastes so different. In a way that is enjoyable for you? Oh, or yeah. Not? Okay. Oh, yeah. It's just a, it's like two different drinks. Yeah. I'm, you know, that's I, why I chugged so much because I wanted to see what like a full mouthful <laughs> of like fresh 
champagne. Emily justifying like, the beer slugs. Yeah. Offer Marie Corton. Love it. <laughs> yes. Jesus. <laughs> it's good. Do you mind if we move on to a awesome lady composer? Take your pick. Let's do the one that I hadn't heard anything from. Alice Mary Smith. Ms. Englishwoman, yes. Yep, the British Alice Mary Smith. She was born in 1839. She died in 1884. So when we're speaking about musical eras, that's right in the, right perfectly within the Romantic era. She had quite a bit of formal training, which... In terms of composition, okay, it was not uncommon for ladies to be pianists, perhaps less common that they were, you know, made a career of it, but there were famous lady concert touring pianists. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, Clara Schumann was one, Fanny Mendelssohn was one, and those are both composers. With Alice Mary Smith, uh, she did have some formal training, which uh, in terms of composition which wasn't always the the most common that ladies would be studying counterpoint and music theory and all of those things. And she did and had lessons and the like. And, you know, she wrote a bunch of stuff. She wrote four piano quartets. A piano quartet is not, does that doesn't mean there's four pianos. Mm-hmm. When you say piano quartet or piano trio, that means there's a piano and then the others, however many there are, are string players. So a quartet would be probably like violin, viola, cello, or violin, cello, bass. You should probably violin, viola, cello, something along those lines. Um, she wrote some string quartets. Uh, that's huge. She wrote cantatas, which, again, if you'll recall, a cantata is a sacred vocal work. It's it's A cantata is kind of like an opera in a church where nobody moves around. So it kind of tells a story, usually liturgical, of course, since it's sacred. She wrote some standalone overtures, which in the Romantic era, that was a thing to write an overture, but it wasn't an overture to anything. You know, you think like overture to blah, blah, blah. But these were just concert overtures. So it's, you know, the overture to whatever, but then there's nothing that comes after it. It's just, yeah. She wrote six of those. She wrote two symphonies as well. And uh, her C minor symphony happened in 1863. And that was premiered by the Musical Society of London. And then about a decade later, she wrote her A minor symphony. And uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of that one. So it sounds like a fairly prolific writer for someone that nobody's ever heard of, (laughs) you know, in the Romantic era. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know that nobody's ever heard of her, but she's certainly Sure, sure, that was maybe a little bit. That's that okay. was not generous, but you know what I mean? Like most yeah. most people who um, I would yeah. say listen most to everyday even, classical music. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I mean, you stop a kid on the street, they don't even know who Bach is. So, you know, whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> Damn kids. Those damn kids these days. But, you know, her music is really nice. She wrote also a, a really beautiful piece called just Andante for Clarinet and Orchestra. And that's really nice, too, so we'll hear a little bit of that. But we're also going to hear a little bit from her A minor symphony. And we'll hear a little bit of the first movement. And it's she was, um, I would say, a very traditional writer in that era. Her, her symphony is reasonably 
sized in length. It's uh, it's not. It doesn't have a huge orchestra, you know. For for her writing this in the toward the end of the you know romantic era, it's just it's it's almost like if you know Mozart had written a symphony in the romantic era. You know what I mean? It's very classical in its and is it is it tone. Um, does it seem to you that it's beautifully non risque? Like I felt like it was. Um, really melodic, really pretty, um, but it, like some other composers we've talked about during that era, Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem very risky. And I I don't know if that's just her personality, how she wrote, because that she knew that, you know, okay, she's already doing something that may not be very common for women to Mm -hmm. be composing at that time and and having their works performed. Mm -hmm. So maybe just stick stick with something that's not going to push too many buttons sort of thing or... I don't know. Uh, I mean, that's kind of speculation for oh, me certainly. to really say, but I, I would assume that that's not the case, to be honest. I think, you know, if someone by that point is writing stuff that's getting published, which that was part of it too. It was like, not only is she a woman composer, but she's a woman composer publishing music, you mm-hmm. know, and the publishing part was tricky. In, in that time, but she did it. And I, I, you know, just listening to a lot of her music over the last couple of weeks, I don't, I don't hear that okay. as she's like holding back or anything. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. That's let's, a good question though. Let's listen. So you picked the symphony in A minor. Yep. Symphony in A minor. I, I chose a couple of the movements to focus on. And, and I think, um, you know, I really love the first movement. And so let's listen to some of that. Sounds like perfect sledding music. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this could be this could be Schumann, this could be Mendelssohn, you know, just right smack dab in the middle of the Romantic era. This is very much that, because it's not, even though she wrote it in 1876, it, it could very well be 1850, you know? It just sounds so of that time. Because as you say, it's not, there's not just excess of chromaticism where there, meaning there are all these notes that aren't indigenous to the home key. It's just a really nice, beautiful string writing. Super pretty. I love it. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great. Um, And let's listen to just a little bit of the uh, minuet and trio. Now, we talked a little bit about 
minuets in our waltz minuet episode. One of the things we really didn't get into in that episode is how there comes a time where a minuet pretty much always had a trio attached to it. And maybe we got into it, but I'll just recap that for you, because basically a minuet, there's the minuet part, and then we uh, go to a different key for a half a minute and do this little trio part, and then we go back to the minuet. So it's just kind of a little diversion that's considered the trio. So So it's a trio in a minuet sandwich. Yeah. As it were. Okay. Yeah. That's how a minuet and trio works. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. So here's a little bit of that. This is the third movement from Alice Mary Smith's Symphony in A Minor. a little Alice Mary Smith. Could we, um, I'm going to crack this open. Please. And then I'd love to, with this, just as we talk about the difference between a champagne and a pet nat, we, yes. we went through it in a previous episode. We have indeed. But I would love, you've never actually tasted the two methods that side I know side. of side by side. So That is correct. Um, it, I think that would be a nice little uh, prelude, a nice little trio to our minuets yes. of listening to um, Alice Mary Smith's Andante for clarinet. That's if, you, if you don't mind if we listen to that next. I don't but, mind one bit. So I brought uh, this next wine that we'll talk about in a matter of moments is the Onward Malvasia Petnat, but it is in a <laughs> cam. <laughs> and it is brilliant. Um, so bring your glass over here, Ms. Reese. Okay. Tell me what you think in terms of Smell, yes, but just, like, even plug your nose and take the first sip to just focus on how it feels in your mouth, the difference in the bubble profile. Try to take everything else and reject it and only accept how the bubbles feel on the palate. This one's unfiltered. Correctement. The bubbles feel much bigger. Yes. (laughs) I noticed kind of frothier. Yeah. So that's, and, um... That lack of yeastiness. Yeah. So that's par excellence, or I shouldn't say yeastiness, I should, because there's plenty of yeasty esters in here, but that lack of autolysis, that's the difference between A, a pet net and a traditional method is the size of bubbles. The pet net's going to be bigger bubbles, kind of frothier and more playful. The champagne is going to usually, or, or traditional method is going to have more serious, finer, a lot of times, like smaller bubbles, they're also going to have more atmospheres. So if you notice, this feels less charged. We talked about the difference in atmospheres. This feels like it has less overall pressure, oh, yeah, less yeah. gas. The other yeah. one seems like it's kind of nervy mean. with, with yes, acidity, but nervy yeah. with bubbles. Yeah. That also is the difference between a pet nat. Has less, usually okay. two to three atmospheres. And then a traditional method, sparkling wine, just like the champagne would have five to six atmospheres. Okay. So... What do you think of the differences just off the – I mean, I know we're not really talking about, I mean, necessarily getting into what Faith Armstrong from Onward is doing yet. But what do you – just just palate profile, just smelling, what do you think of the difference between the two? The Pet Nat smells – I know we talked about, like, the mineraliness of the champagne. This smells mineralier to me. 
Okay. And almost, almost like I can almost smell like a little sulfur, like an egg, egg thing going on a little bit. I don't know if that's from the carbonation or from the wine. Um, it could be a couple things. It could be Malvasia. The grape can be very floral, but kind of stemmy, like a lot of different, mm. a lot of different, very um, garden-like aromas. Okay. And so I think you could be smelling something like that that has to do with the grape. You could also be smelling, I mean, this has been in a can, which isn't allowed to breathe, mm. where even though the cork enclosure, the way a champagne is sealed, it's allowed to age. There's a, f like a finite amount of air that is ex exchanged through in, the a, cork. in a cork, yeah. even though there's a capsule on it. Yeah. In a can, that's not the case. Right. So that's going to, could add to an element of reduction, which is okay. yeah. a lack of, can be from a lack of oxygen. Mm -hmm. So you, that could be what you're also smelling is like something that's kind of egg yolky or something like that. It's delicious still. Just wait till you chug it out of the can. <laughs> I look forward to it. Andante. Yeah, let's just briefly listen to a little bit of this Andante for clarinet and orchestra written by the British composer Alice Mary Smith because it's very beautiful, beautiful piece. So here we go. It's so beautiful. Just such a simple little beautiful piece, you know? Mm -hmm. Just lovely little clarinet. Oh, and I love how that repeated one more time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Little French horn comes in. <laughs> Pizzicato, yeah. So evidently, I want to listen to the entirety of the eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's just it's you know, and it's I don't. A great one. Obviously, I'm not a composer, and I don't. Um, I haven't studied classical music, but and I know that there's people out there that'll argue that this isn't as complex as other compositions, and they'd obviously be right. But we never know when music's going to strike us a certain way, whether and be very very pertinent to something we're going through. And I think that it's technical difficulty cannot outweigh how this could be very enlightening or very special or for, for someone at the right time mm -hmm. or, you know, an entire audience, you never know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so wine in a can. Most, pe most people think wine in a can must not be good quality if it's in a can, right? People yeah, are kind that's of putting... just not true, I've learned. Okay, well, so taste it in 
out of the glass. Okay. And then taste it out of the can and tell me honestly, like, which, granted, we get to look at the beautiful, yeah. like, turbidity and we get to. The beautiful, I'm sorry, what? Like the fact that it's a little turbid, it's a little cloudy. Oh, okay. And then we're able to smell it, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Take a beer swig of it. Or maybe just a wine Just taste. a normal taste. Like, I honestly think Faith Armstrong did a service to the wine community by putting this in a can. It's delicious. Because it's, I would actually prefer it out of the can. It's really good. Only because there are times where you don't have a glass around and, mm-hmm. you know, or, or even friends. Like, let's say you have a fun wine, a, a nice wine that's in a bottle and there's not enough glassware. A friend just passes it to you in the bottle and is like, chill, chill, take a swig of this. I'm like, gosh, I almost don't want to because I want to smell it and see it. <laughs> in this case, of course, I want to do that, but it's as good, if not even better out of the it's can. It's amazing. Yeah, it's delicious. So Faith Armstrong um, hails from her winery. She got, she got two different labels um, out of the same place. So... She's working um, in Northern California, close to the Mendocino area, and but she hails from British Columbia, and she is from this area in British Columbia known as the Surge Narrows, which is like a quite isolated area. It's only, I think it's roughly about 100 or 90 miles as the crow would fly from Vancouver, northwest okay. of Vancouver, but when I plugged in like directions to see how far it would be driving, it says we cannot give you those directions. So it said, like, cannot calculate driving directions. Thanks, Google. So um, what I learned, too, is just, like, researching some stuff and having talked to Faith um, a couple times in the past, her family was, they grew their own food. Okay. She rode in a boat that they called the Onward, which is how they get their name, to school. Cool. Um, And in school, they taught things like, you know, how to call the Coast Guard and math and then they like survival skills and shit so like faith armstrong's a badass she's a mother of four um she has a partner probably like eight dogs i don't know but like how does she keep it all straight her wines i think in not only the still wine community but her sparkling wines are just they're just i say that marie corton is like second to none in champagne i really think that faith is staying true to the origins of, like, soil and grape, but also, you know, she's pushing the envelope a little bit with with pet nats. You know, pet nats, when she was making them, pet nats just started to kind of be a thing here, and so that was a big risk for her to make a big batch of pet nat and just see how it turned out, and it turned out great. So what she is doing here is she's using all farmer relationships that she has with people that are using sustainable fruit, they're dry farmed, so that means they're not irrigated, which is oh, wow. um, that's a big deal there. Huge deal, and also um, really allows for true character of grape to show through because they're stressed mm-hmm. or not, depending on weather. And really championing the vines, and on every label of her onward wines, she has the name of the farm, you know, front and center. Um, well, front and center, bottom left-hand corner, but your bottom right-hand <laughs> corner, but you get the drift. It's like on every label, which is cool. Yeah. And then um, she also makes a, has a label that's called Farm Strong, and that's dedicated to blending grapes and okay. blending vineyards. But her onward label is dedicated to single vineyard, single varietal, of course, single vintage wines. And so in this case, we're tasting her Pet Nat. Um, the reason why it's cloudy is she prefers to not disgorge her wines. So champagne, you're disgorging after the second fermentation in bottle. In a pet nat, you have this first fermentation. It's almost done. You have about 
9 to 12 grams of residual sugar, give or take, and then you crown cap it, and which bottle cap it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's going to keep fermenting in bottle because you have native yeast. Usually creators of pet net are not adding any sulfur So to at this point in the process. So you it, there's still a very low amount. So you still have this fermentation happening, which renders a dry-ish wine, but then bubbles, right? It's got some CO2. Yeah. In this case, there are producers out there who will adjust their atmospheres to being, they know they're going to want to get rid of this sludge sediment in the bottom. Yeah. So maybe they'll bottle with a little bit more carbonation knowing they're going to lose some and play in that game. Faith's like, no, I'm just going to not disgorge it because I don't want to get rid of any of that yeast could be sediment. She's just putting it in the can with as clean a wine as she can. And then it's going through that process. In the can. In the can, in tank. I imagine it depends on the vintage. I've I've sent an email to her and will receive that information back. But a lot of producers that are, um, or I should say the few producers that I know that are making pet nats in cans, they're carbonating it in the can, wow. which is pretty badass. And then there's low to no sulfur because Malvasia has a very low pH, so very high acidity. Okay. And that alleviates the need to sulfur it, which is really cool. Okay. So she does this with other people's grapes. Correct. Cool. Correct. Yep. She's she's a winemaker. Obviously, she's in the fields and checking on things and, you know, taking a, a lot of walks with the with the growers, but of course. Um, she's in the cellar and then she's out on the road selling her wine. She's like a one-woman show, which is wow. Badass. Again. <laughs> chin chin. Cheers. To Ms. Armstrong. To Ms. Armstrong. Yeah, it's tasty. Yeah. And just like Dominique making a r- different range of single varietal wines, some she ferments in oak, ages in oak before she bottles them. Some have a lot longer on the lees than than this specific wine here, the Resonance. With Faith, she makes still wines. Malvasia is kind of her calling card, but she buys Carignan, Pinot Noir. She's got um, her Pinot Noir is just I can't even I can't even tell you how good it is. And when I compare it to some Burgundian. Pinot Noirs that I've had for like five times the price. I'm like, wow, you know, it's just really representative of place. So cool. keep doing what you're doing, Faith. Love it. It's delicious. Thank you, Faith. <laughs> Where, so while we're sipping some Onward, yeah. what are we going to listen to next? We're going to talk about Amy Beach, who is uh, certainly one of the more well-known women composers. Amy Beach uh, was an American composer. When we talk about Women classical composers, some of the names you hear the most often, I mentioned Clara Schumann a little bit ago, Fanny Mendelssohn a little bit ago. Um, there's uh, Baroque composer uh, Elizabeth Jacquette de la Guerre. Hildegard von Bingen is one of the most famous medieval composers, man or woman. And there are many, many uh, right now female composers. You know, Joan Tower, um, Jennifer Higdon, Missy Mazzoli. Uh, I mean, on and on. That list is very long nowadays. But we'll Instagram tag all of you that are still living. Yeah, <laughs> saying that. Um, and uh, Amy Beach is uh, one, as I mentioned, who's more well known. Of course, Alice Mary Smith less well known, which is why I wanted to mention her as well. But Amy Beach, a little bit better known on on that whole list. And uh, Amy Beach was almost entirely self taught, which is remarkable. Incredible. When I read about how she transcribed 
so many things in French, like so many of these French, what would be considered like Bibles on composition yeah. or counterpoint yeah. and stuff, just to then learn what they said, but, com- you know, yeah. transcribe, just tra- incredible. Yeah, she transpose them, or tra- translate. Translate, that's the word we're looking for, yeah. <laughs> she had to trans something. Um, she had to translate all that stuff from French to English. That's an incredible amount of literature. It Ooh, is. And just the time. Yeah, yeah. And so she uh, she got married super young. She was like 18 years old when she married a surgeon who was much older than her. And he didn't want her to have any kind of private lessons or have a tutor. He didn't want her to teach, so she couldn't teach private lessons. So anything she did, she just kind of had to do on her own. And yet she still managed to be certainly one of the most prolific composers, maybe even of that era, let alone woman or man. And was not European in her influence slash, or influence, yes, but she wasn't trained by a European, right? No, she she wasn't. No, she wasn't. So, yeah, I mean, she, I mean, she lived from 1867 to 1944. First of all, long time. Good job, Amy Beach. But also at a time when American classical music was really just starting. Everything before really, we're just going to say 1900 just to make it easy, uh, was incredibly influenced by, you know, the Germanic tradition, the Viennese tradition, just the European tradition of classical music. And it wasn't until, you know, right around 1900 that people who lived here in the United States started writing music that was considered American, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so she, you know, right there is is living and writing at a very fluid time for this country. So it really did kind of allow her to develop her own voice that does sound American in in a way. It's really fascinating. And am I reading this right in my notes? Because I have like 86, 87 was when she wrote the sonata for violin or for piano and violin. Yeah. That we're going to listen to. And so, she, I mean, literally, she's 20? She's writing this stuff when she's tw- <laughs> 20 She started years old? writing when she was like five. No, I think I it was when she was three. three. Yeah, she yeah. was super young when she started writing. And she could memorize, like, according to granted, this is like Wikipedia and one other source to confirm it, but that she was like, she could memorize, like, I don't know, dozens of songs by the time Mm -hmm. she was one. Like dozens. I think it was like 30 or something. Yeah, that's like Mozart level right there. You know what I mean? And so imagine, just imagine if she had had any kind of tutelage, which she had very little, but if she had had through her developing years... Who knows what she would have sounded like? I'm not saying, oh my God, she could have been so much Even better, better or whatever. Yeah. Who knows? But yeah, she ended up being. Um, there are all these little composer collectives throughout history. There's um, five composers in Russia that were called the the Mighty Five or the Mighty Handful or Is that the what, Five. Mussorgsky. Um, Mussorgsky was yeah. in there. Rimsky, Korsakov, Cesar, Qui, um, mm-hmm. Borodine, and then there's a French group called the Six. And there's actually a woman in that group as well, a French woman composer named Germaine Taillefer, who was quite amazing. She lived till like 1983 or something ridiculous like that. Um, it's all that foie gras yeah. and champagne. <laughs> uh, and Amy Beach was also in a composer collective out of Boston because she was a Bostonite. And so she was in with some other American composers like Chadwick and John Knowles. Payne. and. Pain, yeah. yeah, and so that's pretty cool because those are all very like influential, creating the sound of America, mm-hmm. 
in classical music composers. So in any event, she wrote uh, mostly songs. What she wrote more of than anything else was songs. And so songs being, you know, if we're going to be technical about these terms, a song, you know, a symphony isn't a song. A song is something that someone sings with words. So she wrote like 150 or more songs, which is a lot. But she also wrote a symphony. She wrote this beautiful sonata for violin and piano that we're going to hear. A lot of chamber music, um, just, you know, very prolific composer. And then when her husband died, she's like, well, screw it. I'm going to start teaching lessons. And she ended up being quite an influential music educator and champion for contemporary music. Didn't she like tour all over Europe after he died? She or did something? all kinds of stuff. Yeah. yeah, she was just like peace. peace. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. like later gator. That's so great. Yeah. So this is the lovely violin sonata in A minor by Amy Beach on scores and pours. So pretty. It's beautiful. Might as well give you a reminder about what a sonata is, because this being a violin sonata simply means an instrument with a piano, you know. So a violin sonata, you're going to hear a violin and a piano. What the hell is up with all of her timing? Because when I looked at this, I was like, okay, so number four, the timing, the first one, the first movement's allegro. Second is scherzo molto vivace, più lento, tempo uno, vivo. I was like, what the F? And then third is Largo con Dolore, which is like, you know, you're slower with some pain. And then for the fourth movement, Allegro con Fuoco. Yeah. And then it says, Pio Tranquilo, Tempo Uno, Tempo Dos, Tempo Uno. Again, Pio Tranquilo or Largo. I was just like, and then the last one is Asai Animato. I was like, woman. You really thought all these were necessary. All these tempo changes were necessary. <laughs> well, what's funny is that it's not uncommon for a Romantic era piece to have a lot of tempo changes in it, or a post-Romantic piece to have a lot of tempo changes in it. That's I guess not this unusual was, at all. This was denoted though in Spotify in a way that I haven't seen it in others. Weird, well, huh? I kind of prefer more notation than less. <laughs> Just me, you know, because I don't need it. But if I want it, you it's like there. all the information. It's true. Anyway. Amy Cheney Beach. Love it. Amy Beach. Well worth diving into. There's a lot of Amy Beach. There's a lot of Alice and Mary Smith as well. And, you know, they're both very well worth listening to, you know? Do you mind if, if there was one other movement, because we just listened to the first one, yeah. what would you tell people to listen to if they only had a hot minute to listen to one of the other three of the other Let's three Let's listen movements. to Largo con Dolore. Okay. Slower and with pain. That sounds painful. Sounds like the opposite of the wines we're drinking. 
Yeah, it does. Very angsty. Slower with pain. <laughs> Emerald green, army green room, walls, <laughs> dark, winter. Granted, it could sound, there are points that sound kind of hopeful too, like a couple measures ago, it sounded like it had this hopeful, yeah. kind of major-esque. Yeah, that's what we're doing right now, is all this climbing and this beautiful, like, yeah. Love that's it. enough, yeah. <laughs> That's enough. That's good stuff. What are we taking away here? I mean, I I wanted to point out that, you know, I I'm not, I this is just helps me in a way that I, I'm a person that kind of learns through in wine, learns through boxes. I used to anyway. That brings me to so many other things in life, right? And when I want to learn about Viennese wines, like wines that are literally from Vienna. I'll go buy 10 Viennese wines and have a tasting with friends and cook, and that's great. And I think, I, you know, just this is a way to learn more about the people that are actually making these wines yeah. that happened. If I say, wow, female winemakers, African-American winemakers, whatever it may be, it's just a way to find out more about what's going on in the wine community. And so I can't speak for you. I, I sort of through this topic on both of us, like, <laughs> hey, let's talk about some female composers because I personally know some, but I don't know many. And mm -hmm. with female winemakers, there are um, quite a few out there. I think the first person that graduated from UC Davis with an enology degree was um, a female in like the mid-1960s. But in even, I think it was the mid-90s, it was like over or just hovered right around 50% female to male graduates. Interesting. Um, and so... Women in wine is an interesting topic because, you know, are we talking about it because it's harder to be in the profession or is it just a way to say, hey, you know, great job, just like you'd say, hey, great job to you uh, Vermont winemakers or you Texas winemakers because it's <laughs> yeah. um, a little bit of more of a struggle uphill kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so just interesting to point out great people mm -hmm. that are doing great things yeah. that happen to be women. Yes, so. I agree. Just nice to hear from uh, a couple of the, you know, if, if somebody says, we're going to talk about female composers today, I'd be like, okay, I know we're going to talk about these ladies. So hopefully we uncovered a, well, maybe not so much an Amy Beach, but hopefully Alice Mary Smith was a new one for you and that uh, you'll go and listen to some Alice Mary Smith and enjoy it. I found out about a, a Venezuelan female composer today that I can't wait to listen to awesome. um, very soon. But again, to scores and pours, which means we have to fill our glasses. Yep. Bubbles go all too glasses. quickly. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thanks for listening to episode 27 of Scores and Pores with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpores, and we're at Instagram at scoresandpores. 
If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc.